0: Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. This podcast brought to you by our friends at SaneBox.com. Get back to Inbox Zero. Take control of your email. Don't be like Steve Hayes told me yesterday. 271,000 emails in his box. Don't be like him. I'll tell you how. we have a great deal for you coming up later in the podcast. Of course, it's Friday. That means it's the Crystal Clear Podcast Hang on, I gotta close the Whenever Bill Crystal is on the podcast, the rioters gather outside. It's like having Ann Coulter on the show, Bill.
1: Oh, that's the highest compliment you could possibly <laughs> pay me, Michael. I'm really <laughs> flattered. I've I've actually been on college campuses quite a lot this last these last few months mm-hmm. and without too much event. I was attacked ten years ago with a pie at Earlham College, needless Wait, to stop, say.
0: Stop right there. I want you to save that story. I want to hear the Bill Crystal pie story. This is really? going to be—I'm very excited. Just kind of moving on from that. And, but no, that's no, no, okay if chance? you want to stick
1: on that? This is a humiliate Bill Crystal podcast every Friday. That's they okay. Are. That's, that's always, okay.
0: And as the as the rocks keep hitting the window, yeah, exactly. we'll hope that it holds up for us. And I do want to talk to you about that issue of free speech. Uh, Howard Dean, who could have been the Democratic nominee very easily, if not for a bad moment said in public this week that hate speech is not free speech. So I want to ask you about all those things. But let's start with this week and foreign policy front and center again and some interesting moments if you combine the talk about the Iran deal with General Mattis meeting for the first time with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel and everything that's happened in between the tough talk from President Trump saying things like North Korea needs to behave. Once again, we talked about this last week, this is a different moment for foreign policy than i think uh, folks who are not fans of trump like you expected am i right
1: yeah i think so one has the feeling that you're getting a sort of a trumpy version Mm of a Mattis, uh, McMaster, Tillerson, Nikki Haley foreign policy. It's not quite the way I would do some of the things, and some of the things he does are a little silly. I mean, sending a tweet uh, uh, after the French terror, terror attack in Paris, sort of saying, oh, you guys got to get a hold on. This is going right. to affect your election. Is that really appropriate for an American president? And is he supporting Le Pen, incidentally? I guess maybe he is. That's, that's unfortunate if that's the case. Having said all that, a lot of the policies are, are reasonable and tough in a pretty good way. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Now, the execution is obviously we're – just, we're just very, very much beginning down this road. But it's a better road, I think, than it seemed to be two months ago. I keep coming back to the replacement of Flynn by McMaster as National Security Advisor. Everyone I've talked to this week who's on the inside or talking to people on the inside – stresses how important that is. The McMaster, Tillis, and Mattis team has some arguments among themselves, as you'd expect, some differences, sure. but a real professional, serious team. And the other thing I would say, and this is my editorial this week in the magazine, I mean, just thinking about foreign policy this week, I, I wasn't really planning to write about Obama. He hasn't been in my consciousness, particularly in the last couple of months. I mean, Trump inherited, the Trump administration inherited a very bad situation. Obama's foreign policy was really bad, People are not, you know, we sort of have moved on, Obama was right. in the past, and we kind of just have assimilated it, as you have to in a way, what he did. But the degree to which he worsened America's position in the world, in every part of the world, every adversary, really almost without exception, is stronger than they were when they, when Obama took over. Every friend is more doubtful of America, American resolve. The red line only the you know, the most evident sort of example of his weakness and failing to follow through. You surge in Afghanistan and then you withdraw and just fritter away the gains and also make people think, well, they're not serious. You know, he did something for domestic reasons to look like he was trying to win. I mean, it really did a huge... Crimea, left us in a
0: very... Right, so right Crimea, he
1: inher- I mean, Yeah, Crimea. Right. So it's a good example. I mean, Bush made some mistakes. Putin was already moving in 08. He did Georgia and invaded Georgia. But again, think of Ukraine, the, the much greater magnitude. Right. So uh, Erdogan, the recent right. developments in Turkey, well, that happened under, the groundwork for that was laid under Obama. Obama liked Erdogan. I think he said in 2011, Erdogan was one of his five favorite foreign leaders or one of the ones <laughs> he spoke to the most. So anyway, I'm very- I'm, China? S- I mean, I hate to- yes. I'm not
0: trying to interrupt. I'm just trying to remind our listeners. I was talking listeners. to an
1: Asia expert who said, you know, it was the- C- Red Line, interestingly, different part of the world. But when they saw that, the Chinese they said, you know what, if we just kind of seize these little, or build these little islands one mm-hmm. by one, don't do it too provocatively. So there's no sort of flashpoint. Obama's not going to do anything. And they were right. So I mean, I say that partly to set the record straight, but partly also out of sympathy with the Trump administration. It's not so easy. They are inheriting a, a kind of a rough situation. Right. And so even the best, you know, administration without Trump's tweets and without some of the internal, you know, problems <laughs> sure. and stuff would, would have a very tough road.
0: And consider this. Uh, Trump sent a tweet about the French election. And I, I'm with you. I wish he would not say anything about it. But who was just on TV on a phone conference call with one of the French candidates during the election. They're voting this weekend, former President Obama. And I, you know, I do a radio show in Ireland every week via satellite, and the host is definitely a typical European, Euroweenie, liberal, a little more conservative, but you know, he that's his role. And they're like, what the votes no, stop getting involved in our elections. That they they there there is no love at all for Obama the leader. In Europe, there's lots of love for Obama, the image, the style, the he's one of us. But as soon as you get to policy, everybody bails.
1: And as you talk to actual people in governments, including left-wing social democratic governments in Europe, he had paid very little attention to Europe. Mm-hmm. He did nothing to really uh, strengthen our allies there. Again, he kind of didn't do much about Putin, so he sort of left them to deal with this big bully on there. He
0: uh Or remember the uh, the not basic missile defenses in defense the Czech
1: Republic. Yeah. Now he throughout. I mean, so he uh, no. I mean, Brexit happened under Obama. Yeah. I mean, so Mr. EU, he couldn't even convince people in a friendly <laughs> country who liked him, the British. You know, were very pro Obama when sure. he took over. Presumably, uh, to to follow what he would have thought would be a better policy. Now, so, now,
0: I know a lot of people are disappointed. Not nearly enough Trump bashing. So I I can, get, I can get to that. I know. Like. Well, but I want to actually do something. Uh, a lesson I learned when I was doing political work and trying to do ads was nothing is good or bad except by comparison. In other words, every candidate's flawed. So you want to compare him or her to something else that's worse, so that people can get a perspective. What What were you? What was your uh, apocalyptic vision? For the first 100 days of the Trump administration in foreign policy, what seriously? What were you? If, yeah. Maybe you wouldn't even admit it at the time. But what were you afraid we would be seeing right now? No,
1: I mean, trade wars with major countries. Mm-hmm. You know, real protectionist agenda a real crack willingness to just crack up NATO because a lot of the countries weren't paying their 2%, uh, you know, sort of statements about, well, the Japanese can fend for themselves and suddenly they still <laughs> decided to get sure. nuclear weapons. That didn't seem crazy given his no, rhetoric after all. the election. And honestly, some of the people he might have appointed and some of the original appointments, Mike Flynn and some of his colleagues, I think were more inclined in some of those directions, you know? So um, I think in that respect, it's 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 much less bad than it could have been.
0: Uh, I think about his uh, the president... Announcing they're going to investigate China's treatment of steel, you know, the steel imports, et cetera, and I thought it was fascinating how little squealing there was because you can see a a trend, and and with Trump, you know, trends last like four minutes, so right. this could all be different in the next podcast. But I'm going to talk about Carrier, and I'm going to talk about Ford, and I'm going to talk about these specific steel, and that's going to let the the my voters in these industrial states know very publicly and loudly, I'm thinking about you. Whereas from a public policy standpoint, that's not a trade war. I mean, Reagan right. did steal protectionism and, you know, uh, uh, libertarians and free marketers groused about it, but they got it. I mean, come on, it's it's a big country, with a lot of different interests. Could Trump, yeah. do you think, go forward basically giving the Bannon voters these little crumbs, but then generally doing an establishment foreign policy?
1: Yes. I mean, best case, I would say, is sort of some Bannonite rhetoric and pretty free trade, mm-hmm. free market traditional alliance foreign policy. I think the real question, it's just hard to tell, is how much is the rhetoric itself, how much damage does it do? I mean, Reagan is a very good comparison. I was thinking about that this week, so I would put it this way. You know, you can make exceptions to a free trade policy, and everyone understands you have domestic constituencies, right. there are certain emergencies or particular industries, you just have a, you know, are soft spot for the country has a soft spot <laughs> for them, like Harley Davidson or whatever, right. and that's fine. But at least the rhetoric overall was towards free trade, towards the U.S. role in the right. world as an anchor of a liberal world order, and so forth. If the rhetoric is sort of in the other direction, how much do people abroad say? Well, you know, mm-hmm. deep down, he's still not destroying the world trading system. And how much do they say? How much do some local protectionists, you know, say? Well, you know what? Mm-hmm. They're doing protectionism. Why don't we do protectionism? So I think it's it's hard to know how much damage you can do with some of this rhetoric.
0: I agree. Although the Selena Zito answer, our colleague from the Washington Examiner, is. Don't make them, you know, his supporters take him uh, seriously, but not literally, and his critics take him literally, but right. not seriously. So I almost wonder if his rhetoric isn't measured just by it. And, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just trying to figure it out. It seems like his rhetoric is measured by a completely different metric.
1: Well, I think his voters are voting for Trump. They were not voting for Trumpism nearly as right. much. I mean, I I think they want, they wanted an attitude that was anti-establishment, anti-policies of the last. Eight years, but also the last 20 years and the last 40 years in some ways. and In some respects, they were right to be critical of some of the results of those 20 and 40 years. They wildly underappreciated the good things that have been accomplished. And that still worries me. If you have a country that's been told over and over again, God, our policies are idiotic. We've never been worse off. Well, you can then translate that into policies that really will make you worse off. And you don't appreciate that you're living in a wealthy country in a world that's been pretty peaceful by by, by historical standards over the last 30, 40 years mm-hmm. and so forth. So that, that's what worries me a fair amount about about mm-hmm. Trump and about Selena's kind of attempt to uh, I think she's accurate probably in the way she diagnoses it, right. But you don't control how people take you. That's you right. Uh,
0: but I do know some uh, people who were happy to hear this talk about Steele and uh, Ford, et cetera. And those are Republicans in purple states who have to run for re-election to the House of Representatives in 2018. Not a lot of talk about the Senate for all kinds of reasons having to do with state elections and also you know who's coming up and who's not. But there's serious talk here in D.C. Bill about Republicans losing the House in 2018. And we saw this race down in Georgia 6. What do you take away from the two early votes we've seen so far and then the Montana race coming up where Democrats believe they have a real shot of uh, taking that congressional seat?
1: Could be worse, but I think it could be a rough year for Republicans. I mean, A, you just can't forget that it's usually a rough year for the party uh, uh, that has won the White House, especially if they also control Congress. You just have high expectations then. Hey, new party's taken over. Clinton in 93, Obama in 2008, um, they already control Congress, but with bigger majorities under Obama. And now Trump in 2016 already control Congress, but, you know, they held it. Somewhat surprisingly, Trump won. They're going to change everything. So you don't change everything. People are annoyed. You make some changes. People don't like some of the changes. People are annoyed. <laughs> and basically, you know, you're set up to uh, to not to exceed expectations, but sort of the opposite. And that's why the first off-year election is often very rough. And I... I think that's likely to be the case this time. Trump right now is, what, at about 41% approval. That's not horrible. It's not, it doesn't mean you're gonna have a blowout. It's not good enough, though, to overcome the natural historical trend. So I think it's probably 50, but there's some issues in terms of the districts and candidates where you can argue, You know, maybe the Republicans do a little better than normal, maybe a little worse. I'd say sort of 50-50 that Republicans lose the House. So I think maybe a little above wow. 50-50 if I had to bet. I think they are likely to hold the Senate. I just think there are a lot of voters out there who will say, you know, I'm a little nervous about the way that Republicans are controlling everything. Maybe they're just going to destroy my health insurance. Maybe they're going to do mm-hmm. just give Trump a rubber stamp. They won't investigate the things that should be investigated maybe a little safer to have a Democratic House. Trump's still president. It's not like the Democrats run anything, but it's a little bit of a check. The, The degree to which over the last 30, 40 years, the American public has gotten used to checks and balances of that kind one party, wanting to put a party right. in control of Congress that doesn't control the White House. They did it in 94 with Clinton. Mm-hmm. They did it in 2010 on the House level with Obama. They did it with Bush in 2006. It's just, it's very, it, I think it, it is the default for right. a lot of swing voters.
0: And I don't know if, if you see the same connection I do, but I think one of the reasons why you've seen the support for the filibuster inside the Senate Road. Is because if you're going to have decades of these narrowly split, you know, houses and majorities and a divided government, at some point you just you got there's got to be judges, right? You know, there's got to be secretaries of whatever, and so people, you know, well, you know, if 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 it were the case that you had you know one party with a solid majority, you can see why protecting minority would matter. But if it's going to stay 52-48 for forever, you got to move on. First, I got to make sure everybody knows about SaneBox.com who are sponsoring this podcast. So thank you very much. Support SaneBox.com and you're supporting the Daily Standard Podcast. If you're like me and you're one of those people who's been buried under email pretty much since email started, you've never been able to get caught up. You look and you see that mountain of either unopened email or email you meant to get back to and you think, I'm never going to get back to email zero. I'm never going to have an email box where when it goes, ding, I open it. And there's just the email that I want to read. But you know what? I was wrong. I have gotten back to inbox zero, and I did it thanks to SaneBox.com. SaneBox sorts through your email, moves all the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Now, besides getting rid of the junk that you don't care about so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's also this great feature called the black hole. You get an email from someone who you know you never want to get an email from again, spam, sales pitches, brother-in-law, I am kidding about the sales pitches. Um, and so you don't, so you just take that that one email and you drag it into the black hole. Poof. You will never hear from that sender again. It feels so good, and it cleans up your email. And SaneBox isn't a different email system. You can stick with whatever you've got. It kind of it goes on top of your email to manage your email for you and get you back to Inbox Zero. And you can try it right now for free for two weeks by going to weekly standard, But it's better than that because you try it for two weeks, and, you, and if you decide to buy it, you get a twenty-five dollar bonus because you went through SaneBox.com/slash. Weekly Standard. S-A-N-E-B-O-X, com slash Weekly Standard. Okay, Bill, wh- what do you think the strategy, if you were talking to a Republican in a purple district about what should I be t- doing between now and 2018 to help me get back in Congress, what would your recommendations
1: be? You know, I think it's genuinely tough. I mean, obviously, I'm not really pro-Trump, so I would sort of say, hey, distance yourself from Trump. But the truth is you can end, end up getting... Uh, whipsawed that right. way too. The Trump voters are going get annoyed at you. If you really want to check on Trump, you still prefer a Democrat, yeah. right? So why do you vote for some Republican who's not pro-Trump? You can end up with the worst of both worlds. I guess I would make the kind of just obvious... Recommendation: Have your own identity as much as you can. It's hard for House members, mm-hmm. especially if they're in some big suburban. Take that Atlanta district. Yep. You're in the Atlanta media market. How much are you going to get covered on television yep. if you're the congressman from Georgia Six. There were three, four congressmen, I'm guessing, in the Atlanta media oh, market. more than maybe that. Maybe five, six. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and there's two senators and there's you know governors and there's all kinds of stuff going on. So how do you – you pick one issue maybe. You become sort of a crusader on something that's a little bipartisan. Right. You find one Democrat to work with and you introduce legislation to prevent United sure. from – you know dragging people off <laughs> airplanes you know you know that kind of thing and you sort of try to make it be a little makes the election a little more about you. Right. I do think if I were a Republican congressman in a purple district especially an upscale mm-hmm. district like that Georgia one or Fairfax mm-hmm. County where I live um, where which wasn't very pro Trump anyway among the Republicans I'd be nervous about 2018 being simply a referendum on Trump. It's going to be a referendum on Trump to some degree. Right. But you try to separate yourself a little bit from that.
0: The lesson I took away, and I used to, when I ran campaigns, all I did were primaries. That was my pretty much. I mean, that was my wheelhouse. And I was fascinated. Karen uh, Handel, who is just between us, a terrible candidate. She's just whatever, whatever the Q factor is that people just want. She has the opposite. She's like Mitt Romney. She has the opposite of that. And so she's lost two races. Now she's the Republican nominee. But what happened at the end is that Trump, he set aside the fact that she was not particularly Trumpy. He set aside the fact that the district went for Rubio in the Republican primary. He said all this and he's, he said in the last couple of days, I've got to stick in the Trump turbo charge and just get the whole Republican, you know, just give it a boost. And that's I, you could make the case that's the only reason Republicans kept the Democrat under 50 percent is they had a surge on Election Day, a big surge, big turnout among Republicans. And I honestly believe that you could be a Republican out just bashing Trump like <laughs> every day. And in 2018, he's going to say, I need Republicans. Yep. And so he's going to stick in that nitrous. Is that what the guys yeah, who drive right, the cars? Right, and you stick right. the nitrous in and zoom. I think that Trump power that punch is going to be there for you no matter what so just play your local politics if you're in a pro-Trump seat fine anti-Trump seat fine because I don't think Trump can afford to say I'm not going to back that guy over there in Virginia because I, I, he needs every Republican he can get
1: and the anti-Trump Forces are certainly coming out. They're not, exactly. like, not going to come out if Trump doesn't tweet, I suppose. So you could argue, you know, you might as well have him energize his people. I, I sort of agree with that. I wonder if in Georgia, if that candidate had actually lived in the district, you know, had gone through yeah. the trouble of renting an apartment three months ago, had
0: asked his girlfriend to marry him sometime yeah. in the past 12 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, I don't know. You know, that could have been 3% of the vote, right? I yep. mean, just, you know, the less politically uh, attuned voters who just think, geez, really, he doesn't even live in the district, you know? So um, maybe Republicans got a little lucky, too.
0: Although you could argue he is the ultimate millennial candidate. Yes. Still living on someone's sofa, you know, no commitment, and scared of words. This is a new thing for me. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Redneck Nation, How the South Really Won the War, and it's about how all the bad ideas of the Jim Crow South had become the dominant ideas of the American left. And the chapter on free speech was my favorite chapter to write because the parallels were just so Obvious. And I, the, the chapter starts with Mario Savio in Berkeley and how it was the birthplace of free speech movement and that if Savio showed up today, they would drag him off campus, <laughs> beat him and throw him out. When did free speech become anathema to the American left?
1: It's terrible and it's terrible that so many of the campuses are you know dominated by it dominated by but they have enough of that part of the American Left on that they can actually stop people like Charles Murray and Heather McDonald two people I'm proud of uh, having uh, had as contributors occasionally to the Weekly standard and are friends of mine of serious social scientists I mean no one should be disrupted obviously unless it's genuinely you know uh, incitements to violence or something like that uh, right. so even if you're Ann Coulter you should be uh, able to speak but it's particularly appalling I, I what has to say when it's Charles Murray and Heather MacDonald, who are right. genuinely part of the intellectual discourse mm-hmm. of this country at a university level, mm-hmm. people who, whose works are taken seriously by, you know, their colleagues and are refuted or not refuted in social science classes. And they can't speak. I mean, it really is terrible. You know, it's, I hadn't thought about your book and about the Southern, you know, the, right. sort of the Well, d- just so
0: you know, down South, our motto is, if you can't say something nice, drink. <laughs> yeah, and right. I could never hold my tongue or my liquor, and so I was always in yeah. trouble.
1: No, but, you know, you're, it's really a good point, I think. As I recall, I don't remember this history that well, before the Civil War, Southern states didn't Obviously, there were slave states. Right. But they tried to pass laws and did pass laws at the state level that prohibited even advocating That's right. against slavery. You know, I mean, it was they, right. they understood in a certain way, you might say, that just letting people have free speech on that mm-hmm. issue endangered the peculiar institution. And that is now the attitude of our campuses, almost literally. Letting people even say certain things endangers this safe space, endangers this dogma. God forbid anyone should question whether, I don't know, the genders are entirely mm-hmm. identical or, you know, sure. I, whatever <laughs> it is. I don't even know what people are upset about these days. Heather McDonald wants to be tough on crime. She thinks it's great for... Yeah. She thinks the reduction in Mm -hmm. crime rate has been good for all Americans, including especially perhaps Mm -hmm. minorities who are most the victims of crime. She's studied police behavior a ton. What's the objection to her speaking?
0: Well, the objection to her speaking is that when these bad people with their bad opinions show up, they create danger. And you mentioned the South before the Civil War, but what I discovered as researching the book is – when the Freedom Riders and other activists were arrested in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, they were violating laws against basically disorder. Your presence, your opinions create disorder. So in other words, the same tool that the Jim Crow South used to silence people. Well, we, we love free speech. We're all for free speech. It's just too disruptive. It's too, you're, we're protecting you yeah, by yeah. putting you in jail, Dr. King. That's exactly the strategy of the left. But I want to get back, you ignored my first question. When did the left abandon free speech? When did that happen, that they decided that opinions were dangerous? As Governor uh, 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 Howard Dean said,
1: hate speech is not free speech. It's remarkable. The ACLU, which is echoing there, spent 30—when I studied con law 30, 40 years Mm -hmm. ago— it was the opposite. The ACLU was very concerned to say that even conduct exactly. is symbolic speech, and the most hateful speech you know, has to be protected. I'm not saying they were right or wrong. They may mm-hmm. have been right to, to be push the First mm-hmm. Amendment further than it had gone previously in American constitutional law, but it is an amazing reversal. I don't know. You tell me when they started, but I, I, I want to make your Jim Crow point even – I think it's a very good point. And really, when you think about the South, what was it? it? They had a guilty conscience. Yes, exactly. Right? And I think that's true here, too. Mm-hmm. I think it's the progressives who kind of know deep down. They've created this huge castle in the air of phony you right. know, beliefs about so many issues. Mm-hmm. And they're slightly terrified that they could be challenged.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they also don't spend much time being challenged. And you know this because you almost got a pie in the face over it. I, I don't think the typical liberal understands what it's like to be a conservative in the media, academic, you know, that environment where every day it's eight to one, nine to one, and you're surrounded by people who think they're right about everything, which of course can't be true because I, Michael Graham, are right right about everything. Um, And they challenge you all the time. You show up prepared. These hothouse flowers at Berkeley or Wellesley, Alice Lloyd, great piece in the Weekly Standard about this, they almost never encounter opinions with which they don't agree and they like you said, they're they they get afraid. Then they need a safe space to run to. It's so tell terrible, us about
1: the pie. It's terrible about that, that higher education of all places is the home of this. <laughs> the place where you're supposed to challenge right. your dogmas, your opinions. Mm-hmm. Now, I spoke at Earlham, in, which is a Quaker school in eastern Indiana, actually in Mike Pence's congressional district. I remember that because he called me after this incident and had a nice talk. And some, I don't know, I was like the demonstration of how open-minded they were. I was, it was during what? the Iraq War, and I was going to defend the Iraq War. And it was a pleasant visit. I taught a class. I had uh, met with the, you know, the students in political science. Yeah. I did it at the president's house. Everyone was very nice. And then I gave this talk, and this— Kid rushed the stage and threw some pie at me. It wasn't it didn't do any great I mean it kind of ruined a suit I was wearing and I wiped it off and kept on speaking and uh it, no great damage was done but it it is um. It was just kind of comical that at a Quaker college that so so doesn't believe in any kind of violence. It was so proud, really, and I say this—they sure. I mean, were nice people. I feel bad for them. They were—they they were so proud that they were having this diversity right. of opinion for you know one guy on campus <laughs> during the year who who agreed with about fifty percent of the American public. Right. You know, it's like the um, and then of course it gets ruined by this pie throwing.
0: Okay, and now the question everyone who's listening wants to know what kind of pie. And was it wasn't any. Yeah, good. it was some big fluffy pie. It so, was like Boston Creek type oh, okay. thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it
1: didn't hurt. That was good. <laughs> That's that was good, good to know. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, I hope this podcast hasn't hurt anybody. And the protesters, they seem to be drifting away. I think they found some... Actually, I think they're now protesting Fred Barnes, who's giving a speech. He's doing his own show across the street, so they can drift over there. You've been listening to the Daily Standard podcast every Friday. It's the crystal clear edition. Please subscribe to the podcast. Go to iTunes or Google Play. If you ever have trouble finding it, they're all on our website, weeklystandard.com. There's an entire podcast page. When you go to iTunes, etc., please give us a review. Five stars. Let people know that you enjoy the podcast. Also, check out our. Oh, am I allowed to promote the substandard podcast on this? Bill,
1: no, no, okay, Absolutely never mind. Enough. I will not what mention is, the substandard I podcast. Believe you again. even I, raised I that question. Oh See, my God,
0: this is where the free speech ends. <laughs> exactly. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Michael. Gray.